0: My perspective on ISIS, that is, having, having helped the Iraqis fight them for so long, if ISIS is anything, it's an army. ISIS wants to win. They might not be good, but they really, really want to win. And they're willing to pay an extraordinary price to win and to defend what they took. In Mosul, I'd suggest that it hosted the most violent urban combat that the world may have seen since World War II. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Modern
1: War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and for this episode, I had the chance to talk to Colonel Pat Work, Commander of 2nd Brigade Combat Team, 82nd Airborne Division. For nine months last year, Colonel Work's brigade was the centerpiece of the U.S. advisory mission in Iraq, working alongside and enabling Iraqi security forces in their fight against ISIS, including a months-long and remarkably hard fight to dislodge the group from Mosul, a city that ISIS had seized in the summer of 2014 and where the group's leader had proclaimed a new caliphate. There is perhaps no person in the US Army with a more relevant perspective on how best to partner with a host nation military and win on the modern battlefield. His experience during the battle for Mosul also situates him uniquely to examine the challenges posed by cities, an environment in which US forces will increasingly be called on to fight in the future. It's a great conversation full of important insights, but before we get to it just a couple quick notes. First, hopefully you're already subscribed to the MWI Podcast. If not, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take just a couple quick moments and leave us a rating or give us a review. It really helps us to get the word out to new listeners. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Alright, here's my conversation with Colonel Pat Work. Colonel Work, thanks so much for for taking some time and sitting down and and talking to us today. You recently returned, uh, along with the brigade that you commanded, 2nd Brigade Combat Team, 82nd Airborne Division, from the Middle East Theater, right, as part of Operation Inherent Resolve? Yeah, that's right. We got back uh,
0: mid-September to mid-October, returned from a nine-month deployment. That's correct.
1: Okay, so we want to kind of talk about, um, I guess... Uh, is what your brigade experienced during that deployment. Um, But I first want to kind of take a step back and and try to contextualize it. Uh, You've had previous deployments uh, in in sort of our post-9-11 wars. Uh, When you look at those previous deployments and and then this most recent one, uh, how do you see the operating environment having changed? Um, How is the adversary different? What are the big changes that you take note of? Okay.
0: Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here with you. Okay, I'll start by, uh, you know, my perspective on who the Islamic State is, this so-called caliphate. The Islamic State, largely built from, uh, you know, the ashes of Saddam's Baath Party, the AQI super affiliate, capitalizing on the crowning catastrophe of the Arab Spring, the Syrian civil war. You know, as these guys had a plan, and they did what. Al-Qaeda never could, they did what Al-Qaeda in Iraq never could, you know, they, they planted the flag and they established a credible state. Now we could argue whether it was a state or not, they thought it was, and they administered political goods in their own brutal way, 7th century justice, they had a war economy, they were able to continue to uh, uh, administer everything from security, safety, their own brutal brand of rule of law. Uh, very limited political participation, certainly, but human development. They sought engineers, they sought intellectuals. I mean, they're serious people about building a state. And you know, by 2014, they had consolidated terrain and populations about the size of Lebanon and Israel combined, right in the middle of what some would call the Shia arc. You know, between Syria and Iraq. So they had a plan, and they executed it. Additionally. My perspective on ISIS, that is having having helped the Iraqis fight them for so long, if ISIS is anything, it's an army. And I think it goes back to this intoxicating narrative that, that they exploit. Not only is the the politics of the region complicated, whether it's ethno-sectarian, states trying to, you know, influence other states. ISIS exploits all of that. And it's got this message that says, there's one guarantee of paradise, and it's martyrdom. The apostate regimes in Damascus and Baghdad want to see you fail the minority Sunni population. And we have gotten too far from the 7th century, and we need to take it back. And because ISIS doesn't see boundaries, it literally has no perspective for boundaries because, you know, in its worldview, God has no boundaries. It must always expand. Therefore, it must always be at war. And so, my perspective on ISIS, if it's anything, it's an army. In the end, because on the very hardest days in July of 2017, as the Iraqi security forces are closing in, choking them out in the old city in Mosul, everybody was fighting. How do they defend for so long? Well, you know, you've got your foreign fighters that we tend to pay a lot of attention to. You've got your former regime elements that act like an army. In the end, you had a population in Mosul that fought to the death. Because from its perspective, the ISIS worldview, much of its narrative was playing out. People are starving. Civilians are caught up in this the conditions are extraordinarily unsanitary, it's violent, et cetera. So if you flip it, this, this, this narrative that they pound in these Sunni regions, it plays out on some very grinding, hard combat. And in the end, a lot of people were fighting. The infirmed were fighting, young were fighting, old were fighting, male, female. They fought until the very end and the Iraqi security forces had to stand in that and continue to advance on some extraordinarily difficult days. With respect to ISIS, they're really serious people. You know, they're not very good at at fighting maybe, but they're really determined. And I call it the imbalance of conviction. ISIS wants to win. They might not be good, but they really, really want to win. And they're willing to pay an extraordinary price to win and to defend what they took. Now in the end, we destroyed their army, the Iraqi security forces, uh, but it took it took a lot of courage, it took a lot of encouragement, it took a lot of you know, violence to get it to the point where the government of Iraq was once able to you know, sufficiently control its terrain, its population in Nineveh province. Remarkably, the eastern side of Mosul, as the fighting stopped on or about February 1st of last year, immediately began to respond. So while this incredibly violent fight is playing out on the west side of the Tigris, the east side is coming back to life. And it was amazing the relief, the liberation that the people felt on the east side with just, you know, a kilometer's worth of river in between them. It is really extraordinary how resilient the people of Iraq are. They can actually endure massive hardship, and they do. So the east side's coming to life by March and April of last year, while the battle in the west is just really starting to turn into a block by block slog. And ISIS, uh, pretty determined had about two years plus to prepare its defenses of Mosul. Um, what it lacked in capability or capacity it made up for with conviction, they wanted to win. And uh, they fight like an army. That's an important perspective to understand ISIS, but it's also a, you know, a critical vulnerability for them too. You know, when, when you two Arab armies collide in the streets of Mosul, not only does it become astonishingly violent on certain days, But uh, the defender, eventually mass, is going to overwhelm them. Eventually, it's just going to break them. They also cannot defend in multiple directions. So my last kind of tactical comments about ISIS until I start to compare to the security forces. ISIS defense of Mosul hinged on four inputs from my perspective. One, the suicide vehicle-borne IED. It's car bombs. So it had a legion of car bombers initially, but that's a finite resource. And when it's consumed, it's really hard to replenish and it's hard to do it well. And their suicide car bombs are so effective because they intimidate the nastiest and the fastest of the security forces, the counterterrorism services, the best Iraqi army units, they want nothing to do. And, and ISIS had its own little high payoff target list on the really organized ISIS fights when tanks, or blade assets would appear on the battlefield to do you know, Iraqi Army-style combined breaching, the suicide bids would come. So they did have a plan, and they could execute it. They didn't have much capacity, though. So if you think of the city of Mosul kind of like as defensive belts, you know, they've got a certain capacity until you hit the next defensive belt and a certain capacity. For, so for two or three days, it was extraordinarily violent and bloody with the suicide car bombs, and it intimidates people. The second thing they, is infantry. ISIS infantry. And it goes back to my initial comments that if ISIS is anything, it's an army. And in the end, everybody will fight to defend what they believe in and to defend what they think is their, you know, their caliphate, their true believers, they're serious people. So three to five man infantry squads, and it it starts to look more like, uh, you know, the Western Front of 1916 when they're fighting block to block, and three to five-man infantry squads can knock out every wall in a building. They can turn every house into a fighting position because they had two and a half years to prepare this defense. And these three to five-man infantry squads, when you look at it overhead or you look at it from a distance, you look, well, that looks like a, a, an entire elementary school. It's not, it's one massive fighting position, and they have prepared it well. And three to five fighters can make that position exact and extraordinary cost on the advancing security force because they're strategically pos- strategically positioned everywhere and it creates this sniper like effect whether you're skilled marksman or not it doesn't matter it's just a lot of bullets and it's you know it's a real cost to close on that so even if you're not killing a lot of Iraqi security forces between the suicide car bombs and these 3 5 man squads you are Uh, certainly draining their willpower and their courage over time, right? It's a grind right there on the forward line of troops. It's just bloody work. The third thing it hinges on, centralized control. So it's an Arab-styled army, is ISIS. And how does the central control manifest itself? Well, when ISIS is fighting well, its commanders are on the battlefield, and they're forward, and you can tell. You can tell because they can quickly change priorities with their mortars. You see a extraordinary consistency with how they shift their priorities with their indirect fires. You see that their artillery pieces are firing at nothing but headquarters. After a couple days, you see that they have us dialed in and they are firing on all of our patrol bases and bases with their long range artillery. It might be 10 artillery pieces. It doesn't matter. He knows exactly what he wants to do with them. He can move his suicide bombs around. When he feels like he is threatened somewhere, you might see a rash of them because he repositioned resources, central control. He can break his mortars if he's only got 100 mortar rounds to fight tomorrow, like a checkbook. He's going to budget. He's going to win in his mind. So he needs to make his finite resources last. So tomorrow we're going to fire 100 mortar rounds. It could be as clean at times as 50 fired on this axis, 50 fired on another axis, split right down the middle in a very egalitarian way. Hey, commander. You get this much with your battery of mortars, you get this much with your battery of mortars firing tomorrow. That's how clean it was, that's how controlled it was. You could see a centralized control with the way he integrated his small UAS, his drone quadcopters, that when he launches those, those would serve as reconnaissance, perhaps a suicide bomb's coming, perhaps that's the forward observer for his artillery. You know, and you start to see these patterns because he's centrally controlling what he's doing. So that's the third factor. Suicide car bombs, Three to five man infantry squad, skilled or not, doesn't matter. They just grind down advancing infantry in the streets and his central control. The fourth input that I argue his defense relied on is ISF inactivity. Any way you look at it, the ISF had a, the Iraqi security forces had him outgunned, outnumbered everywhere. The challenge is ISIS could make it cost so much in terms of blood and willpower to take very small, arguably inconsequential areas. That you know, inevitably you got to sort of recock yourself and reorganize for what are we going to do next? Importantly, shifting to the Iraqi security forces now, we overhomogenize them. I think by referring to them with that broad blanket. Um, there's Iraqi police, and they're police. They're trained as police. They're armed and organized as police. They're trained as police. Then you've got a counterterrorism service that's kind of trained and organized and equipped for close combat. And then you've got an army that's trained to maneuver. So you've got three different sort of flavors in there. And I would argue that Staff Lieutenant General Abdul Amir, the Iraqi general, the, really the combatant commander for the counter-ISIS fight in Iraq, he really commanded a coalition is how I see it. He held his coalition together. He was their Eisenhower the way he kept you know, the Ministry of Interior contribution, the Counterterrorism Service contribution, the Minister of Defense's contribution, how he kept that coalition together when they all answer to different bosses in Baghdad and at times the cooperation meets competition. And it's all gotta be done in a very egalitarian way, you know, cause they all have their own interests as well. So when it gets particularly violent on one axis or one, uh, area of the fight, they might look to each other and say, hey, when are you going to pitch in over here? We need some help, you know? And certainly we're helping everywhere as a coalition, but their coalition, their coalition's powerful and General Abdul Amir holding their coalition together, really important story that I don't think enough people know. He held his Iraqi coalition together extraordinarily well. Okay, additionally, as we talk about Iraqi security forces writ large, not only are they more like a coalition But our approach to coalition warfare I think matters as well. So my perspective is that the Department of the Army helps our brigade combat team train for war, prepares us for war. Then when we go, we employ as part of a joint task force. But we really fight as part of a coalition. So my experience fighting in this coalition is predicated on this as kind of the top rule. The Iraqi security forces are the number one member of the coalition for the counter defeat ISIS fight in Iraq. They're number one. They're the key contributor. On the hardest days, they suffer the most. They made massive sacrifice to defeat ISIS on behalf of not just their own state, but the world. The Iraqi security forces with a lot of help from a lot of us, coalition contributors, dealt a massive death blow to the so-called caliphate. They, They destroyed it. So they're number one in the coalition. Their coalition is always, you know, from my perspective, we have to help them protect their coalition and help them hold their coalition together. They are the number one members. It really is about them there and they. All the while, we have interests. So the way this sort of interaction happens between the combat advisor and the Iraqi security forces, one, like any coalition warfare, I think we have to listen. And once you understand what the partner is trying to do and what their perspective is, you can map out your interests a little bit. So we listen. That's, that's always front of mind. Just listen. Hear them. What are they saying? What is the pattern? What are the commanders saying? It matters what they do, but it also matters what they say because it allows you to anticipate as an advisor. You can start to see things build momentum. So listen. Number two, got to maintain contact with them. So one of the real innovations, I think, that happened under Lieutenant General Townsend's watch at the Combined Joint Task Force is advise, assist, accompany. General Townsend Um, made a decision that allowed combat advisors to move further forward, Mm -hmm. uh, to get closer to the fight, to get a fingertip sense of what's happening. And more important than us having better awareness, I really do believe, you know, it's advise, assist, accompany. There's a fourth A that really matters. It's assurance. When you're there on the very hard days and your partner knows that I got your back, don't flinch, don't wobble. We're in this together. I'm bringing assets to bear to help you. That assures him on the really hard days, okay? And it allows us to have a real understanding of what's happening forward and how they're seeing the world because it's harder for them than it could ever be for us. can't replicate just how stressful and just the, the slaughter that happens in Mosul. You can't replicate it. you got to be there with them to assure them. So advise, assist, accompany, assure. There's another one that matters. Anticipate. If you're always maintaining contact with them because you're with them all the time. No distance too far to drive. No time too late to meet. We can't drink enough tea. I will go as far forward as I can without picking a fight for myself. Whatever you need, Commander, I am here for you. And your ability to anticipate because you're always maintaining contact with them, that's the fifth A. Advise, assist, accompany, assure, Anticipate. That way, we can start moving our finite resources around to keep pace with the decisions that they're making to enable their operations. Because we're always with them.
1: You, you mentioned that. I mean, it is about enabling, right? Um, That—that's the role of the mission uh, in in this fight. Uh, you mentioned General Townsend's decision to allow U.S. forces to move forward, and that being an important part of assurance and building trust. Yes. Um, how? How? I guess. Do you have any thoughts on, on how to make this then sustainable? Because as we saw, you know, it was July of 2017 that you sort of wrested control back from Mosul almost three years uh, and a few days probably since, since an entire Iraqi army division essentially fled, uh, fled the battlefield when, when, when Mosul was first attacked by ISIS. How, how do we make it sustainable? So if ISIS or some other group were to emerge, present a similar threat, that the Iraqi security forces are now in a position to, uh, to manage that. Does it, does, it, does it require a long-term commitment
0: from us? Okay, so I, I don't want to take a stab at American foreign policy. What I will say is with the Iraqi security forces, um, this was my fifth time serving in Iraq. and To understand them, the generals are sons of Saddam's army the generals fought the Iranians as lieutenants and captains. They remember the days of a glorious Iraqi army with 34 armor divisions. Today, there's one. They remember the days and they resentful of Saddam for grinding down their army in a war with Iran and then kind of bankrupting the state and leading to this other war in 91 that further damaged their army. And then in 2003, Lieutenant General Abdul-Amir, who is now the commander and the deputy chief of staff of the army, was actually a brigade commander wounded by Americans in Haditha during the invasion in 2003. You know, so their perspective matters. Who are the Iraqi security forces? Some of these generals that fought in Mosul were commissioned in the 70s, yet they're still on the battlefield every day and they fight much like our battalion commanders would be expected to fight, where there's friction, move forward. So you have two and three star generals going straight to the front because they have to inspire their charges and spur them to keep moving. That's an important perspective about the Iraqi security forces. And in 2006, 2007, during the Bush administration's troop surge, largely Americans did all the fighting. That was some bruising combat that many American soldiers will remember. You know, soldiers and Marines fought You know, some grinding combat. It's not that now. The Iraqi security forces are clearly in the lead. It's also not the same groups from 2014 when the ISIS rampage ran right through them. That is not this Iraqi security force. Not only is their adversary ISIS you know, on, on its armies really on life support at this point, uh, but there's a confidence that has come through the confidence. These guys have stood in the storm and they have weathered it. And they've worked their way through it. And they defeated ISIS militarily. So it's a different Iraqi security force now. So how do we continue to encourage them? How do we take our finite resources as a coalition and continue to help them? I I, I would encourage us to always continue to listen. I think we need to be realistic, you know, realistic. Realistic about the environment. Realistic about who the partner is. Realistic about, you know, their own internal agendas and the agendas behind the agendas. I would encourage us to, you know, continue to be realistic. And then, you know, we we have leverage. So I, I really think that it's always important whenever you're advising or assisting or helping the rec, you know, never lose sight of our own interests as well. You know, we have interests as well. So as you listen and you understand how they're thinking, and you're realistic with your approach to helping them, and we're realistic with the shared objectives that we set. You know, we have leverage in areas too, and to maintain the will to exert it where we can, um, keeping pressure on the global Salafist jihad in the region still matters. You know, and and uh, I suspect that some form. Of the Salafist Jihad will resurface somewhere at some point. Why wouldn't it? And when it gets sufficiently organized, we probably need to be in a position to help them smash it immediately. I want to shift gears a little bit um, and talk about specifically about Mosul. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: General Milley, Chief of Staff of the Army, uh, has said the future battlefield is going to be increasingly urban. He, says, mm-hmm. he said recently that um, brigades should be optimized for an urban fight. Uh, what does that, based on your experience in Mosul, what does that, what does that mean in practice? Do you think?
0: All right. So the urban environment in Mosul, I'd suggest that it hosted the most violent urban combat that the world may have seen since World War II. And it played out block to block. It was really difficult, and it changes uh, perspective for for. Uh, Infantry Brigade Combat Team Commander, my perspective, and that's all I can speak from, <clears throat> They're they're still a need to always be brilliant in the basics. You know, so that's kind of like step one, brilliant in the basics. And when I talk about brilliance in the basics, what do I mean? I mean, our, we, we have to develop our leaders. We have to tell them early that we value your minds. You know, the, we have to help them understand the future fight. Two, our physical fitness you know, the grind of urban combat, the athleticism that it takes to fight in urban combat. And I choose that word specifically, where nothing's linear. It's all moving up, down, laterally, plyometric explosion. It requires great flexibility. Sprints, not jogs. Our physical fitness, because no matter what environment you're in, fatigue will make you a coward, right? So how do I help our paratroopers, in our case, stay focused on the fight? Well, they're fit enough. They're fit to fight. Three, marksmanship. I would argue that our ability to be precise with our lethality, whether it's delivered by artillery, jets, bombers, or our individual weapons, our precision lethality, day, night at the range of our optics and lasers, that's probably the most important individual skill that we can give a soldier. When he or she decides to kill in combat, can they do it? That is confidence. And then you just, it's about judgment at that point because the skill sets there. Brilliance in the basics. Medicine, massive amounts of casualties. How do we change our approach to surviving in combat? Combat medicine. How much class eight supply, medical logistics does it take? How do we fix people forward in the fight? How do we collect casualties and evacuate them in a way very hard decisions that allow us to maintain, you know, a sufficient level of control over diet of wounds when the fight becomes dramatically decentralized in an urban environment. How do our combat medics ensure that day night in this complex environment, you are prepared at the point of decision to do your job? Particularly when there's five or seven of us because the house just dropped on them. I mean, th- these are hard, hard things. But brilliance in the basics. You know, first things first, we got to get the right. To, uh, how do we continue to execute small unit drill in this environment? You know, reacting to contact, the most basic skill. All fights start with the squad. When the brigade combat team assaults an airfield to try and take it from our enemies, the fights start at the squad level. How do we continue to build? squad level competence to execute drills in contact with an enemy that's trying to take their lives in a complex environment where they gotta be discriminant, where they gotta be precise. How do you build that drill into them? Again, build br- brilliance in the basics. I don't think we should lose sight of that. Now, the way we train, however, how do you replicate this medley of urban violence that you would see in Mosul? What training areas do we have that could possibly replicate that? I will tell you, our combat training centers—the approach now has changed dramatically. Um, th- those are tough problems. You know, I, I hesitate to call them fights because it's lasers. You know, no one's getting killed, but there is a stress that comes where you know the opposing force does things that man, you're like, man, that's that's not at all realistic. No, but it's hard to overcome. It's difficult to deal with. And you, you put stress on people, right? So um, the way we equip, what sort of communications do you need when I can't see around corners and I can't secure myself around the next corner? How do I instinctively train people to get the high ground so that they can dominate from vantage points? What does this mean for fires? What does it mean for counterfires? Our ability to detect what the enemy's doing to us, our ability with agility and precision to deliver against him what does it mean for our mobility assets you know how do you move in an urban environment how do you move fast if it's speed and surprise and it's your ability to mass in certain places to dominate how do we organize to do it so there's a host of dot mill pf sort of challenges that i'm sure the chief of staff and a lot of uh, a lot of his team and a lot of our armies working on right now for sure and i and i'd reckon you know this is this is what forces command does. This is what the 82nd Division commander does. They think about ways to prepare our brigade combat teams for war, prepare our paratroopers for war, um, so that at the point of decision, we can do this. It's hard though, and it takes massive amounts of work. I mean, there's a price to be paid to be good at this. I think it's, it's significant that
1: we were talking about the coming battle for Mosul for months, if not you know, more than a year. Uh, we knew it was coming we knew that was a place where isis was going to largely um, make their sort of last stand mm-hmm. within iraq at least um similarly for raqqa in in syria uh, that was a deliberate choice of theirs right this is this is advantageous terrain for isis what are the features of you know especially if you look at if you look at aerial imagery of mosul you know there are parts of it that are you know on a grid and pretty. but if you look at west mosul in particular uh the oldest parts of the city it is complex and Byzantine streets. Um, it is so densely populated with people, and there are still civilians there, so precision still matters. Um, but what are the other features that maybe people don't think about that, that make this, um, I guess, advantageous for ISIS to defend and then difficult to attack?
0: Okay. So first, for perspective, M- Mosul is about the size of Philadelphia. It's a massive city there is truly an east and a west because the tigris river runs right through and it's you speak to the old city that's like biblical nineveh you know this is a ancient city you know it's a city that most of the construction there was done in the 19th century that's still standing there's a fourth dimension to old city with catacombs and tunnels um and ISIS in a matter of two years was able to craft a defense that any army would have a hard time dealing with. So what, what, what are some of the other complexities? One, you, know, you, you really want to preserve the city to, you know, if you, the, the point of the government of Iraq taking this back from ISIS is so that the government of Iraq can administer political goods in Mosul again. Um, and so that's always front of mind is how can we be more precise and I would argue that uh, for such a high-intensity fires, joint fires, coalition fires fight, there's probably, I can't imagine any war ever being fought with such precision. The challenge is ISIS turns every home, every religious site, every medical institution, turn them all into fighting positions or caches or command nodes, and ISIS turned this defense um, You know, took the city hostage and took every home that families used to live in. Those aren't homes anymore. He's fighting from them, and the Iraqi security forces. In order for them to advance, you know, in the end, their attitude will be, "Oh, that's only a structure. We need to keep moving," and in turn, we try to be as precise as we can. Okay, so when the east is no longer connected to the west, which happened by about February, the bridges were out along the Tigris. The Iraqi security forces were consolidating gains in the East. I told you that the East responded extraordinarily quick. The resiliency is amazing. I, I recall taking General Votel there at one point and drinking chai with him uh, back in September. You know, was just walking down the street. Old Mosul, men and women walking out with books tucked under their arms. And none of that had to do with anything with ISIS-deformed worldview. And it irritates ISIS that the Iraqis are moving with total freedom of movement on the east side. As the fight unfolded on the west side, General Abdul Amir, what he taught me is important. His argument was that no one lost more than the Moslawis in 2003. The people of Mosul uh, were big supporters of the Baath regime in Baghdad. Um, many of them had great affluence, uh, state intel, the military, etc. So there's areas of Mosul that are really affluent And you know when you're in the rich neighborhood because the homes are massive. They overlook the Tigris and so forth. And then you got the old city. You got an airport that's no longer an airport because ISIS destroyed it. It's just flat now. You've got an old base there that was called uh, Fab uh, Merez, Ford Operating Base Merez, named after Joe Merez of the 23rd Infantry Regiment. This was an old coalition base. It's gone. They destroyed everything. ISIS destroyed everything during its rampage when it took the city. And let's not forget, When General Abdul-Amir says no one lost more than the Moslawis, there's a reason ISIS took the city in five days back in June of 14. And it has something to do with the way General Abdul-Amir describes it. I mean, this is what used to be a very pro-government population. His argument is now it became an anti-government population. And the city went in five days fell under ISIS. So among all of these areas, with this kind of cruel undeniably brutal way that ISIS defended. It's bent on using humans as obstacles to prevent the ISF from advancing. Shields, a deterrent to us to, to not strike in certain areas in support of the Iraqis. Um, we should never lose sight. You know, the physical terrain is one thing, but the Iraqis are like, we could rebuild that over time. ISIS uh, most cruel innovation was probably the use of people as obstacles. And uh, you know that adds a degree of complexity that you know, not only is it just evil, it's, uh, it makes it hard tactically. And the Iraqis dealt with it and we helped them. And uh, in the end, after nine months of brutal fighting, the Iraqis consolidated gains. The real story is not only did they consume ISIS army in Mosul, they destroyed it in Mosul. Tlafa went down in 12 days. So there's about, you know, July 16th was the last day bombs were dropped in Mosul by the coalition. The fight for Talafer, just 50 short kilometers away to the west, started on August 20th, about five weeks later. It went down in 12 days. By September 1st, the remnants of ISIS were <laughs> getting hunted down um, why in Minowa
1: province. Why why, why why was that fight so short after Mosul was so long?
0: Yeah, the... Not only did the army get consumed in Mosul, it shattered it. I told you that the ISIS, if it's anything, it's an army. And it defended Mosul with most of what it had, is my argument. Mm-hmm. It was also committing resources to Raqqa at the time. Don't forget that the, the coalition and our partners in Syria were ratcheting up the pressure on Raqqa. So they had tough decisions to make. They lost the crown jewel of the caliphate in Mosul. And Raqqa, its you know capital, its global capital for its so-called caliphate, was under extraordinarily under extraordinary pressure in Raqqa at the time. So Talafar, some of it probably had to do with resources, right? It didn't have much and it had to make decisions internally. I told you it depends on central control. It fights like an army. Its generals make decisions about its resources. I would argue this, though. That five weeks, we pivoted immediately. From the time our last strike occurred on July 16th in the, uh, to help the uh, Iraqis consolidate in, in Old City, we pivoted immediately to attacking them in Talafar, Constant pressure on them for five straight weeks coalition fires uh, to shape and prepare the environment. And uh, not only did it not have the same capacity, I doubt it had the same willpower. And for five weeks, between the Special Operations Advisors, our team, the Combined Joint Forces Land Component Command, we kept constant pressure on them. So by the time the Iraqis attacked, they learned too. So the Iraqis not only learned how to kind of defend themselves better. You know, when you're not attacking, you defend, and they figured this out. That's how you protect against a suicide VBID. When you're not defending, or when you're not attacking, you defend, that's how you protect against these three to five man squad. No senseless deaths. Don't waste anything. They also learned to attack on multiple axis. What changed everything in Mosul is on May 4th, the Iraqis opened a second front. So on the west side, by about mid-March on, it was a slog from south to north. And again, 1916 in France. On May 4th, that anvil that was established midway through western Mosul running east-west, the hammer started coming down on the 4th of May, an attack from the northwest along the Tigris. And ISIS can't defend in two directions. I told you, central control matter, matters to him. And when all of his eyeballs and all of his guns can be focused in one direction, he's tough. When you start attacking him from multiple directions, the Iraqis learned, they went to al on four different directions. And essentially, they move so fast in some areas, um, you know, they didn't over plan anything. They hit him from four directions. They brought him to his knees and then they pursued him and hunted him down. And we were there with him, hunting him down. So there, there's a n- number of factors that I attribute to the rapid collapse of the defense of Talafer. Twelve days. Wow. They did it. Well, and it was work. their idea.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, this has been fascinating. I'm sure there's a lot more that we could probably unpack here, uh, but we'll leave it there for now. Thank you. Yeah, great. Good spending time with you. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, if you're not already following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We want to connect with other people with an interest in the topics we cover and it's a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. All right, thanks again.